Thanks for joining us today. Uh, my name is Greg Lois, and uh, we are here today to talk about uh, a change in the New York Workers' Compensation Law, in fact, the change to the statute, which occurred in 2017 and is now going to be phasing in. Uh, today, we're going to discuss uh, the actual law change. We're going to uh, give a brief overview of what changed. Uh, we're going to talk about which one of your cases are going to be affected. Uh, we're going to talk about best practices for employers. In fact, Christian's here to talk about that. And uh, Andrea is going to give us sort of the opposing counsel viewpoint on this. So uh, we're hoping that uh, this is a lot of fun for everybody today because we're going to give a couple different perspectives on this change in the law, which we think is going to impact a lot, a lot of cases and anticipate a lot of uh, questions and uh, confusion on both sides of the bar about this. So today we're going to have a little bit of fun. Let me introduce everybody. Uh, this is completely and totally live. I've been putting stuff into the chat channel. Uh, there is a link to our updated article, so please uh, follow, check that out. Uh, this is going to be totally live. Please type in questions. There's a little questions uh, section. You can add, sec, add us questions, and we will answer them the best we can at the end of our live. Live. Okay, <laughs> so put us on the spot about uh, this change in the law that nobody knows anything about. So this is going to be some fun. Uh, let me introduce the panel. My name is Greg Lois. I am the managing partner. Uh, co-founder of this law firm. Uh, we are currently uh, 28 attorneys defending uh, workers' compensation claims in New York and New Jersey. It's all we do is workers' comp defense. Uh, we have been taking a look at this statute as it's changed over the last 10 years or so and trying to stay ahead of all the changes and give our clients advice on what to do next. So that's what we hear about today. Uh, sitting to my right, your left, uh, is my partner, Christian Cisan. Hi, everybody. Uh, Christian leads a team here. Uh, how many attorneys? Uh, right now, about four. Four attorneys, yeah. three paras. Yeah. And right. all you do is workers' comp defense, fair? Every day, all day, defending from day one. <laughs> all right. You and I have been together for seven years. So it's fair to say the last seven years or so, it's been only workers' comp defense. Right. Day in, day out, employer side, carrier side. Right. Fair? Best seven years all of my right. life. The uh, reason I'm setting it up that way is because, uh, Andrea, you've been with us for about two years, fair? Yes. Okay. Unfortunately, you're on Christian's team. Tough uh, So it's tough for you. Uh, but before you came to us, uh, you represented claimants for years before the board, fair? Yes, I did. All right. So today I've given you the unenviable task of telling everyone how opposing counsel, how the claimants' attorneys are going to thwart this change in law, which I think, uh, from the defense perspective, we think is pretty good. And from my perspective, I think it's going to be really fun to see how we can twist this into a pretzel. Great. All right. So, uh, spoken like true uh, claimant's attorney. Uh, wonderful. Uh, all right. Here we go. Uh, quickly, I'm going to run everyone through the changes to the statute. The statute was changed in 2017 uh, to provide a credit to employers and carriers for temporary disability paid after 130 weeks. And the way that credit will be expressed is a credit against permanent residual disability. Uh, this is similar, or I think the intention of this was similar uh, to the intention of a limit on temporary disability in other states. For example, uh, a state that we do practice in, New Jersey, there is a limit on temp, hard limit, 400 weeks. After 400 weeks, no matter whether you're in a wheelchair or you're still in a hospital bed, you're deemed at that point to have transitioned to permanent disability. And that makes sense, right? It's eight years has gone by. You're not getting any better. It's, it's time to go. Uh, in New York, uh, we're going to say two, uh, 130 weeks, which is about two and a half years. 
Uh, okay, that's it. You're not getting any better. Uh, it's now time to move on to the permanency aspect of the case. Now, uh, we're laughing a little bit and, and giggling because we know nobody ever gets better in workers' compensation in New York. The doctors uh, seem to like to throw in new injuries as time goes on. I'm sure you'll tell us all about it. Uh, but uh, the fact is the reason this statute was put into place uh, was uh, to address the failure of the board or the doctors, really, the doctors, to ever find someone at MMI. We make this joke that we know what MMI is. Uh, everybody knows what the definition of it. No one's ever seen it. You know, it's like a unicorn. You know, we could describe one, but no one's ever seen one. Um, the other idea is it addresses a common tactic, which is staying on temp forever. As a claimant, uh, you can really manipulate the system uh, to stay on temp and to get that two-thirds wage replacement forever. We all know that there are paternalistic physicians out there that uh, claimants attorneys can direct their clients to who will find everybody, including an Olympic uh, marathon runner, to be temporarily totally disabled. Uh, so after 130 weeks, the intent of the statute is that we, as the employer or carrier, get a credit against permanent residual disability at that point going forward. You're still paying them, Tam, uh, but we are then later able to claim that those weeks were actually permanency weeks uh, at the time the case is ultimately resolved. Um, I want to repeat that this is not a cap on temporary disability in the way that other states have a cap. Again, New Jersey, a good example, 400 weeks. After that period, there's no such thing as temp anymore. You can't be temporarily totally disabled. Baby steps in New York. Baby steps in New York. It's one thing at a time. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, not that we're cheated or anything, right? All right. So, uh, which cases are going to be affected? Well, every one of your cases which has a date of loss after April 10, 2017, that's the date the statute was amended. New York has a hilarious way of changing their workers' comp statute. It always seems to be tied to the budget, which gets passed in like April. So every law in the entire state essentially gets passed at one time. That's what happens here. Uh, it, it takes effect 130 weeks after April 10, 2017, which simple math uh, reveals will be October 9, 2019. And that's why there is some urgency to this webinar and this topic. And the urgency is, hey, this is going to start affecting our cases pretty soon. So I'd like you to tell us, Christian, sure. uh, how the, how we are going to react to that. Yeah, so I mean... Oh, wait, 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 okay. wait. One more little thing. Right. Okay. Let's talk. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I never get willingly hand over, <laughs> voluntarily hand over a microphone. Do I? Sure. Okay. sure. <laughs> so you know, you know, you know. All right. Uh, there are exceptions to the credit. Uh, there are exceptions to the credit, and the board calls this the safety valve. Uh, of course, right? We, they can never give us anything uh, that's actually beneficial to employers. So the board calls this exception a safety valve exception. Uh, I call it uh, the loophole, right? And this is the thing that I think claimants are going to exploit to the best they can. Essentially, the claimant can argue at that 130th week that they actually were not at maximum medical improvement. The case is really not ready to move past temporary disability stage. And if they find that, uh, the board can either let the parties litigate that issue or negotiate that issue. Uh, so that you're calling this the safety valve, right? Uh, really, I think this is the loophole that takes uh, means this thing is meaningless because the claim is going to come forward and just say at the 129th week, hey, my doctor says I need surgery now, so let's start all over again. And that's what they've been doing in the past as a way to thwart us moving on from to maximum medical improvement. All right, uh, last little bit. What is the definition of maximum medical improvement in New York? Entertainingly, it's a relatively new definition. Uh, it is contained now in the regulations that occurred when they actually had to pass medical treatment guideline aspects of the statute. There is also a subject number. Maximum medical improvement in New York, and I, brought, I, I have it here in front of me, says that the claimant 
has uh, no further uh, benefit expected from additional treatment and no further improvement uh, can be reasonably expected. So that's the definition in the court rules. The board has then had to go out and clarify that by issuing uh, what they call a, um, a subject number, which is essentially like a board bulletin. It's really, uh, it's not binding, but it's something they're supposed to follow. And that definition now says, quote, the mere assertion of the possibility of future surgery is not a bar to a finding of maximum medical improvement. The appropriateness of the surgical intervention should be evaluated, et cetera, et cetera. The judge should evaluate the credibility of the claimant or provider who asserts the possibility of future surgery based on such factors as the history of the treatment, prior request for surgery, et cetera. And the reason for that is because one of the classic tactics to come forward in court and say something like, oh, judge, I know I've been on temporary disability for five or 10 years, but my, my doctor still thinks there's maybe a surgery out there someday, maybe that'll make me feel better. Therefore, I haven't reached maximum medical improvement. So that's something that's been going on in the past and the board's had to address that. All right, Christian, please tell me, how are we going to, as the defense bar, uh, both protect this right to credit uh, expand this right to credit, and how are we going to tee these cases up? Yeah, so uh, you mentioned that it was simple math to get us to October 9th of this year. It's not that simple, actually, right? I mean, 130 weeks, I can't do that in my head, but the reason why we're here today is because we have to start planning for those cases now, right? So your case population is going to include those April 2017 cases after April 10th that would make 130 weeks in October 9th of this year. And how do we argue that a claimant has reached MMI? We have to get the right medical, meaning an IME is going to help us litigate whether that claimant has reached permanency because we know that if the loophole is in place for the claimant to argue that he has not reached MMI, we have to prepare for litigation on that issue, right? Mm -hmm. So getting the IME now to help you in October is actually what you need to start thinking about so that you can prepare yourself for that prospect, right? Do you believe we absolutely have to get an IME or do you believe that the credit is automatic? So the credit, I'm, gonna, we're gonna argue, I'm using the word believe right. because nobody knows. Yeah, right. I think it's, this is a nice statute. little discussion, right? Because the statute basically says that the 131st week would allow the credit to take place, right? right. I think it's the word shall. So right. you know, shall get a credit. And I think for that perspective, and we're kind of side-eyeing our <laughs> opposing counsel over here, uh, you know, that argument, I, I do think that getting an IME is going to be very important just to protect right. it and uh, to sort of uh, be ready. Uh, with it when they start to argue, oh, no, I wasn't really at MMI at that time, right, to sort of set the, set up the game here. That's right. I think that a lot of judges are going to look at this as different interpretations of the same statute, right? Mm -hmm. We've seen that um, recently in a lot of cases involving our industry, uh, particularly schedule loss of use, but now we're looking at ELWEC, which in my estimation is really one of the biggest problems in workers' comp, where a 1% non-schedule impairment will lead to over 200 weeks. And even at the minimum rate, you're looking at over $30,000 for something that is very minimal, right? So shall, in terms of the credit, is going to be our position. But I think if we know that the loophole is going to be used by the other side, the IME strategy should start now. Because if they make that argument on October 10th of this year, then we need to rebut that, right? Mm -hmm. We talk about presumptions always helping the claimant in this practice. Mm -hmm. So when that occurs, the IME is ready to kind of rebut that and let us go through litigation 
uh, for that purpose. Mm-hmm. But what you've just described is essentially what the law is now, right? If I have reached maximum medical improvement, the cap starts. Additionally, the 130 weeks of temporary benefits or the temporary disability, that's another issue that needs to be debated. Does that mean 130 weeks in which I was receiving compensation at a partial rate? Does that mean 130 weeks in which I was out of work? Whoa, 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 whoa. Like, no, no, wait, 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 she she claims she claims to the other side. All right, so let's walk this back. Uh, we're telling clients right now, let's start red flagging cases. We're doing it internally. We're looking at cases with the date of loss after April 10, 2017. Uh, we're looking at October 9th, and which of these cases are going to be teed up. So we're telling clients, best practice, start thinking about that now. The next thing is, uh, internally, I mean, we started our training on this months ago, and the in training is essentially to arm the attorneys uh, with the how we're going to approach this, which is this is a presumption in favor of the employer for a credit that applies on the 131st week, right? Right. And we know, and uh, I'm again, I'm side-eyeing my opposing counsel over here when we talk to judges about these things. I mean, informally, off-the-record conversation with judges, uh, they're telling us that they haven't gotten very specific guidance from the board about how this is to apply. Fair? Nobody has. Even in the guidelines themselves, on the subject number that announced this change, they said clarification will be forthcoming, and it hasn't been forthcoming. Right. The judges don't know exactly how it's going to apply. And typically, based on my experience, when judges don't know how to apply a law, they tend not to. Correct. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And then, you know, you went to the summer conference last week, right? That was posted right. by the board. Right. Uh, we've, and I went to the one in, in July. Uh, they really just skimmed by us. This wasn't a focus, and, it, and the conference I attended, there wasn't a discussion at all. Right. It would have been nice, right, right. To, to get some clarification and give us some predictability on how to really deal with this issue. Uh, I think they chose to deal with other things that are certainly problematic in, in our uh, area of law, but uh, I think what you mentioned is that the uncertainty surrounding this process gives us an opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. It, it makes it different for us to the point where we can actually create law by making the arguments and interpreting our version of this statute. Yeah, we're certainly looking through our case population to find perfect test cases for this. I'm waiting for an adversary to fight back against the credit so that we're going to be in investment. You'll have to wait two more months. I don't think so. Right? It very soon. All right. So uh, would you agree that the uh, uncertainty is a leverage? I think we're also telling clients, let's think about our IME strategy now. And, and that's because IMEs in this jurisdiction just take so long to get scheduled, to get done, to get the reports back, and then to be viable. So those are all some thoughts that can be applied to cases. All right. Claimant perspective. Now, I labeled this because I'm a mean person, and I'm, I'm completely one-sided about how I see these things as exploiting the loophole. I will remind you that it's the workers' compensation court and not the employers' compensation court. Oh, great. Sure. Thanks for that one. She's getting ready for mock trial. All right. So let's talk about the claimant's perspective on this. Okay. Um, My understanding from just reading it, my gut instinct, where on the other side, I know that Christian's been trying to beat it out of me for about (laughs) a year and a half Figuratively, to make it clear. Yeah, figurative. Right. Great. Nothing actionable here. What's going on? Great. Wonderful. Um, Is, first of all, I understand that there's so much ambiguity in the law, but that works on for both sides, right? What does maximum medical improvement, do you have to prove that I've reached maximum medical improvement or do I have to rebut that presumption? Because if you have to prove that I reached maximum medical improvement as of the deadline, you're in exactly the same position that you were before. Because once I reach maximum medical improvement, the calves start to run. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I I don't think it changes really 
the uh, strategy we would normally take because if we want a claimant to reach MMI, we need to get the IME to take the claimant off of temporary disability. Uh, it's more the fact that the result that we are looking to achieve from a case in particular actually has retroactive uh, importance to us, mm. right? Mm. Unless I have an international medical improvement and I can go outside and find five doctors that are going to want to operate on my back right now. Wait, are you saying that claimants pick paternalistic physicians with opinions How they suspect are going to be dare find you? These people are hurt. <laughs> um, all I'm saying is that there are treatment options that I are available. righteous anger you bring to this. That's what I'm here for. You made, you made her play this role. You created this. <laughs> what I'm saying is that there are treatment options that might be explored that would otherwise not have been explored by claimants if they're put in a position where you're trying to take away the money. Right. Um, additionally, and apart from surgeries, right, we have a lot of doctors that say, well, we hope that after she goes through 20 more weeks of physical therapy, she might improve and now she will be able to walk a little bit further or do this a little bit further. So there is a question as to what exactly it means by maximum medical improvement and who the burden, who bears the burden of proving maximum medical improvement versus not. Because right now, the burden is on the carrier, right? Very rarely, except in cases of schedule loss of use, you have claimants counsel saying, I want my client to be found at permanency now. Right. Unless there's something very wrong with the case. Right. Or the claimant's going to move to another country or Which they're starting a new business or something. Because right. um, <laughs> so if the claimant's going out of the country, you're not going to get a perm report, you're not going to get up to date medicals, the case is going to go sideways. Right. Unless something's going sideways, claimants counsels typically don't push LWAC. Right. Because there is no cash out payday. And the uncertainty of LWEC, again, works for both of us, right? You get to negotiate and say, what if it's 50% LWEC? And I say, what if it's 100% because this person is the most injured human I've ever seen in my life. He is right. so brave. Um, well, I think that's where we come back to the definition of MMI. I mean, we're talking about the legal uh, arguments that we make during cross-examination of the treating doctors that are saying that MMI has not been reached. Uh, and, and, you know, you may mention the definition as you know, uh, the greatest extent expected, right? So uh, there's also a part in that def definition where the mere assertion of surgery does not bar MMI. And that's what we are doing in our case population already. It's more about how that now affects us uh, based on uh, the date of this, this accident and the date where we can reach a, a possible credit. And the other issue though is temporary, uh, temporary disability. What exactly does that mean? Am I disabled while I'm working? Am I then working with a disability? Um, a position that could very reasonably be taken is if I was working for the first year and then I had to go out due to the surgery, the 130 weeks shouldn't start until you started paying me because whoa, there are no whoa, benefits whoa. that have been paid before. It says uh, where the employer provides compensation pursuant to subdivision 5, so temp, of this section beyond 130 weeks from the date of accident or disabled. Right, but it says compensation. I think we lost a neutral moderator. Whoa, whoa, that's fine. Whoa, and, whoa. Uh, that's fine. And, <laughs> and the important word of what you just said right now is compensation. What is right. compensation? If you're not paying me, you're not compensating me. So if you're not providing compensation benefits over 130 weeks, where's your credit? I think it is. That, this is the strongest argument that they're going to raise. I also think, and we were talking about this in your office earlier, um, what about uh, the thoughts you had about intermittent weeks and whether those get added up or not? That's, right. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's going to be another interpretation uh, problem as well, because uh, you would be disabled from 
that first date that you're out, but just because you return to work doesn't mean that like you're going to have lost time thereafter before the 130 first week occurs. But if I don't have lost time thereafter before the 130th week um, occurs, then I'm not receiving compensation for those weeks. And they shouldn't be counted towards the credit. Or should they? Or because the 131st week allows for the first week of credit, right? So it doesn't say specifically that the claimant has to be not working. There is that definition of compensation that you're throwing out there, but I think this actually makes for a lively argument uh, that we're going to be start making, start, started, starting to make in October, where yeah. it's going to be a back and forth. Those 15-minute time allowance hearings are probably going to be closer to an hour. Yeah. Right. But that is the position, Right. That if I'm not getting compensated, if I'm not receiving compensation benefits, why should you get a credit as to payments you didn't make? It's the same thing with the cap. If I get classified today and lose no time from work, my cap isn't running. Why are you making temporary benefits different than permanent benefits? Right, and in that case, aren't you just reducing, for the person who loses no time for work and then gets an LWEC award, right. aren't you just reducing their total benefit weeks from 450 down to 450 minus 130? And if they get classified. Aren't you just punishing the ideal claimant who is pushing himself through his disability? They don't exist. That's a unicorn. Thank you very much. All right. All right. Anything else the from ideal, opposing the counsel? The ideal claimant goes back to work and doesn't do anything anymore. Before we go to questions, because I feel like this group up here, we could, we could talk about this all day. So I think it is really interesting. Well, the only other question is total benefits, right? If I'm getting a total disability, there's a presumption that I haven't reached maximum medical improvements. Would those work towards temporary partial or towards temporary disability? I think, I mean, I would make the argument that any benefit that you're receiving, any week that exists before 130 is going to be credited uh, or, or apply towards getting the credit on week 131. But I mean, you know, we'll just have to stay tuned. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think our viewers think of this topic? Have they asked any All right. good I mean, questions? We've got a bunch of good questions in here. Um, I mean, I'm going to flatter you. One of the questions is, why do you keep covering up Christian's handsome face? So, <laughs> who said that? Yeah, somebody's who complaining. That? Please, please right, announce um, yourself. So we're going to announce the person's first name, whose question we are answering. Uh, we're going to read your question, and then we'll answer it uh, as best we can as a group. Great. There are a bunch of questions here, so we're going to try to go through this as quickly as we can to try to get everyone's questions. So Maureen uh, asked our first question. So. 130 weeks means all weeks, regardless of if it was paid at TTD, meaning temporary total disability, or PTD, meaning partial temporary disability, or TR, meaning tentative rate, right? So tentative rate is a thing that exists in New York. All weeks count against the 130 weeks, question mark. Right? I think that's what we were just discussing, right? And yeah. I think opposing counsel has a different So Maureen, uh, great question. I think you cut right to the heart of it. This is going to be the chief debate. Obviously, our position on the defense will be that, yes, everything counts, even we don't pay. And opposing counsel and claimant's position is going to be, no, 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 you don't pay it, you don't get to take credit for it. And also, tentative awards are tentative in nature, which means they can be modified if there's an uncertainty as to whether they are temporary or not in nature. Okay, here's a great question. Thanks. Here's a great question from Anthony. Again, I'm going to keep pushing through as many as we can. Anthony, uh, W asked the question, wouldn't an IME be dangerous in that it does, if it does happen to come back with a no maximum medical improvement ruling, the judge would definitely not allow the carrier to use this new law? Correct. Right? So uh, he's asking, hey, if you guys are teaming these things up with IMEs, and the IME actually comes back and says less than uh, full working ability, haven't we just shot ourselves in the foot? 
I think it's a, a, a real case-by-case -case analysis yeah. to make because you have to look at the medicals from the claimant's doctor for the cases where you're going to think that an IME might actually hurt you, right? So if uh, we have an, a, a surgery, an authorized surgery that just took place last month, then we know that an IME in the next few months is not going to find MMI, and even if he uh, or she does, it's not going to be deemed credible. But I think uh, the basis for using an IME is because we're going to expect the claimants to use the loophole. I mean, I'm in speaking to many of our adversaries now. It, it's not like they don't know that this loophole exists, right? That this exception, the safety valve exists. Oh, yeah. So uh, if we don't get the IME yeah. and we think that our, our claim is going towards MMI at week 130, then we know that if we ask for the credit, the claimant's attorneys are going to argue that MMI hasn't been reached by pulling up the report that says 100% temporary disability. Yeah, and so I think Anthony's point really is, hey guys, can't we um, be destroying our right to discredit by doing these? Maybe, but that's why we're saying let's write a flag of cases and look at them. Sort of right. Case not every case that's is going to tell. Not every case is going to mean you need an IME now to find MMI on October 9th. Right, and right. that's what we're telling clients too. I mean, we're doing it in our system. Uh, but, you know, if you have a risk management system, uh, you should be also looking at these as well. Okay, so John M. asked the question, oh, sorry, Teresa asked the question, is there a workers, if there is a workers' comp claim prior to April 10, 2017, and you get an IME that does not give MI, does the 130 weeks still apply? Uh, no, so it doesn't apply to claims prior uh, to April 10, 2017. This credit just simply doesn't apply. Sorry, it's not in the statute. Which it was? It wasn't. Uh, John M. asked the question. Credit to be applied as number of weeks, or is it rate specific? As the temp rate may be different than the PPD rate. I think it's pretty clear it's number of weeks. It's the number of weeks. Yeah. Eric Toth. Oh, sorry, Eric T. Ah. <laughs> Wouldn't medical treatment be considered <laughs> compensation? Uh, so interesting uh, question. No, uh, it specifically refers to compensation being uh, wage compensation, and it specifically re refers down to section uh, uh, five of the statute 15, which talks about wage replacement. So, uh, no, uh, medical care is not going to count. Uh, sorry, you want to add something? I was just going to say that it crazy your arguments have been made by Christian in court. Yes, absolutely. I mean, some of them work. Some of them do work. That's all I'm saying. It's right. an argument to be made. Right. Good. Thanks for saying that I make the crazy arguments. I'm sure you don't make any, right? I'm so sane in court, so calm. It's because I'm defending from day one, okay? All right, uh, Scott G asked the question, will the type of benefits paid matter during the 130 weeks? And so that's something to be determined, Scott. Uh, and, and he listed in here temporary total disability, temporary partial disability, tentative rate. Uh, that is to be determined. And right now, our argument is going to be everything counts, including weeks not paid. That's, that's going to be our default position. All right. Sorry? I want to ask you a question. Do you think that protectively we should start trying to litigate instead of agreeing to TR rates just to make sure that we're double protected? It's mm. a very interesting question. I think I think TR rates are the bane of this temporary disability existence, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, a lot of our adversaries will request tentative rates uh, on some kind of theory that it will end on a schedule, right? But we don't know that. Right. We don't know that there's not going to be a consequential back or a consequential site claim in the future. Uh, but essentially, it also prevents us from raising attachment. But, I mean, we're going to get into a deep, deep uh, uh, right. soapbox here on that issue. But you time. generally yeah. do not want to agree to a tentative rate unless there's a closed period. Okay. Uh, all right. 
Uh, Betty asked the question, claimant has been on temporary partial disability since the date of loss, which was after the date the statute changed. He has not reached maximum medical improvement even with IMEs. Can all TPD benefits be credited once at MMI, even if this is a slew for a particular body part, i.e. arm, leg, etc.? How does that work with the normal hearing periods for workers' compensation section 15, subsection 4-G? Uh, you're already getting credit for temp on a slew. So yes. it's moved. Sorry. Uh, uh, Brad asked a question, um, hey, is medical benefits compensation? Uh, Brad, I think we've already addressed that one. Um, Oh, people are coming in saying thank you. Yes, that's great. Well, thank you, here, so that's great. Uh, Scott asked the question, what's the practical benefit of this? Once MMI is found, LLEC will soon follow shortly thereafter in most cases. That's the practical benefit, right? I don't need to jump to the, to the case, but getting to LLEC in two and a half years is going to be like a miracle in all these cases. Additionally, there, theoretically, and I'm going to just argue Christian's point for two seconds here, is if you don't litigate it, if there's no finding that there's no MMI past to the 130th week, and we litigate permanency and MMI is found at the 150th week, for example, you get the credit for those 20 weeks. So if his classification benefits would entitle him to 350 weeks of credit, you wouldn't pay 350 weeks anymore. You'd pay 330. So it would reduce the overall indemnity exposure for carriers. Right. I think the question uh, is maybe contemplates a, a later LWAC, but we want them earlier, so the cap ends earlier. Anthony asked the question, an RFA, should an RFA2 be filed, or will this only be argued at the time of PERM, similar to apportionment? All right, so I think our position is going to be to be proactive on this as best we can. Yeah, on cases we'll be sitting back and waiting for the final determination, but I think this is something to get way in front of. Uh, yeah, uh, a couple good uh, thanks. A couple of yeses, a couple of, uh, uh, and uh, let's let's leave with this one because I think this is a great observation from Kim A. Uh, Kim A says, "Hey, maybe this 130 week credit issue will be a good time to work out resolving all the issues in a case, right? That's really how we're seeing this. I think uh, when there's change in the law, when there's uncertainty, I think we're looking at that as, hey, here's an opportunity to resolve things and close them down. Um, uh, you know, I do." want to be the firm that actually takes this case the appellate division and wins and gets the law upheld as written uh so think of us when it's time to appeal these please because there is going to be a time to appeal it right? yes absolutely the ambiguity will create an appeal from both uh, from either side whichever side loses that litigation and i think we should be prepared to make case law because that's what's going to interpret the statute law as written is good for us i think so let's try to defend it. Okay, so we're looking around for the best case that we can find to defend it. Um, all right, so we've been at this for over 30 minutes now. Uh, we want to thank everybody for joining us. There's a bunch more questions here. If you sent us more questions in, we're going to uh, respond to you uh, via email, and then we'll send an email to the whole group with our Google Ask questions on this. This is a topic I think we're going to revisit a few times before the actual phase in. So. Thank you guys for joining me today. I really appreciated uh, the conversation and the banter. I thought it was great. Um, and we're going to continue to keep everybody who joined this webinar up to speed on uh, all the updates or changes that we learned. All right. Have a great day. Have a great week.